HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off, and we at HRN get 10 bucks. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut. Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up. I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Julie Resnick, co-founder of the Actual Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. I will be your host for season three of the Feed Feed podcast, a special series called What's on Your Table? Each episode, we will take a look at a specific country, region, or people and talk to a few members of the Feed Feed community about the food, recipes, ingredients, and flavors that make up the dishes that are always on their tables. Today, we're celebrating Latinx Heritage Month, and I'm joined by three special guests. First off, we have Andrea Lorette Demola, a member of our editorial team here at Feed Feed. Andrea is an assistant food editor and photographer for us. She's the daughter of Peruvian immigrants and loves to incorporate Peruvian ingredients into everyday cooking and recipe pitches. Prior to joining Feed Feed, she worked for several different restaurants in both New York and Florida. 
Andrea relocated to New York City last year to pursue a career in food media and attend culinary school at the Institute of Culinary Education, a place that's near and dear to my heart, as I also attended ICE, as did Molly Adams, our senior food editor. I'm also joined by Marisol Salazar, a New York City-based food, travel, and lifestyle writer and video host. Maricel was born in Panama City, then moved to Honolulu, then to Japan, and when she was in middle school, she moved to the U.S. Wow, what a childhood. I can't wait to dive into that later in the show. My third guest is Lorena Salinas, the chef and creator behind every recipe, photo, and video on the blog Cravings Journal. Lorena's journey to food blogging started as a child in Lima, Peru, where she where food was central to everything in her daily life from special occasions to dinners with her family. Lorena now lives in Chile. Welcome to the Feed Feed podcast, ladies, and happy Latinx Heritage Month. Andrea, can you tell us a little bit about the history and significance of Latinx Heritage Month and why raising awareness and celebrating it is important to you? Hi, Julie, and thank you so much for having us all in here. I'm super excited to be on the podcast. Um, So Hispanic Heritage Month is an annual celebration that spans from September 15th until October 15th, and it aims to celebrate our culture and our contributions to the U.S. Um, We make about 18% of the U.S. population, which, if you think about it, is a lot and equates out to about like 60.6 million people. And it's also important to know that like we are all from different countries and we contribute to our local communities and our cultures are all different. You know, there are similarities, but they're not all, you know, one in the same. Um, and I really do believe that when you connect with people from different cultures, I think one of the best things that you can do is try their foods, um, especially if you don't speak their language and you don't, you've never lived or visited their country of origin. Um, I speak Spanish fluently, and I visited Peru probably more times than I can even remember. And when I cook for my family and friends, I love teaching them. And I think that's why it's so important, because people learn so much more that, you know, Peruvian food is different from Mexican food or Panamanian food or Spanish food. You know, there are differences, and we all make up a community, but, you know, we should celebrate our differences and elevate different voices as well. So... Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, Marisol, I saw that you recently wrote an article for Thrillist, 25 Latino-owned businesses in New York City. Tell us a little bit about um, pitching articles and have you always spotlighted Latino restaurants and chefs and businesses in your work? Or is this something that you have taken on a little bit more recently? It's really, it's interesting that you say that because as a writer, you, you either want to be known for your beat or your niche. And then on the other hand, you want to have the ability to cover everything that you're interested in. And I've always covered Latinos, POC, Latinx, Latinos, minorities in my work, but I was never very overt about it. It's it's always been my biggest goal and pleasure as a writer to spotlight voices that are underdogs, so to speak, and for better, worse, or indifferent. Latinx voices are are very much underdog voices. So I, I never came out with a campaign in my work saying, I'm going to make sure that I only cover Latinos in my work. But you can see in my past coverage that there's a pattern there. It's 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 subtle. That's always been my focus. And it's up until recently that I've actually made it an outward statement. 
and a pledge because for the reason that in media's recent history, POC and minorities, especially Latinx, were were not very sought after. It was similar to what Andrea was saying, you know, we Hispanic food, Latin food is so much more than, let's say, just tacos, burritos. We each have different cuisines. We all come from different countries. And even within the countries, it's it's so different. And in food media, I always felt like, oh, okay, you know what? Like there can only be one Latinx writer or one one story on something to do with Latin food. And that's it, you know, until the next news cycle. But I always just kept making sure that whatever I was working on did have some sort of coverage of a minority voice in it. And it hasn't been until recently where it's, you know, instead of me having to push my way through and making sure these voices are heard, now people are asking for these voices. Yeah, that's great. That was actually what my question also was going to ask is, um, you know, has the process gotten easier? Are people now coming to you and asking for those stories before you even have the opportunity to pitch them? Totally. Well, it's this this story that I wrote for Thrillist is a perfect example. My my editor, Tay Yoon, sought me out and asked, Hey, I'm we would love to cover something for Latinx Heritage Month on Latinx owned businesses. Would you like to write it? And I was so thrilled because, you know, most of the time it's always me pushing the editors to get these kinds of stories. So it, it really made me happy to see that publications like Thrillist and, you know, editors like Tay Yoon were, were proactively seeking out the writers who could potentially best speak to it. Um, and I really do think it's, it's, it's spurred a huge change in media given the recent upheavals and the reckonings we've been having. But this is what it should have always been. Right. Um, and that isn't to say that people from other cultures can't, you know, write about uh, a Hispanic business or a Latinx owned business. Of course. It, but it is, it does feel great. And I do think it is the right process when you reach out to someone of that background first. And if nobody else from, you know, that ethnic background can write about it or feels qualified to do so, and they're saying that, then you're looking at others, which is great. And so tell us a little bit about that particular article, 25 uh, Latino owned businesses in New York City that you need to know. What types of businesses did you spotlight? Well, it's heavily skewed towards restaurants and bars <laughs> because that is my my bread and butter. And a lot of Latinx owned businesses are within the food industry because it really is an entryway or a gateway to becoming a small business owner, especially for immigrants. A lot of the Latinx owned businesses that I highlighted on the list are also immigrant owned. And for that reason, it's because when you come, when you're an immigrant and you come to a country like America, you can either work for somebody else or you can try to strike it out on your own and try to, let's say, elevate your family and create some sort of generational wealth for your children and their children. And the food industry is a fantastic way to do that because not only are these people bringing their culinary traditions, their gastronomy, their flavors you know, to us, which is beautiful and only expands our world, but for themselves, they're creating their own uh, piece of independence. Yeah, 
It's, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, it's a way that um, I think that we were talking about earlier. It's, it's one way to bridge the gap, right? It's one way to, you know, even sometimes, um, you know, in politics, it's like people sit down and they might have a different view on a particular topic. And then you sit down and have a meal together. And, you know, even if, even if in the end, um, you know, you're arguing passionately, um, <laughs> you know, you still might be enjoying that, um, you know, wonderful dish prepared by someone and, and opening your eyes, um, you know, to other ideas and other people and other cultures and cuisines and flavors that, you know, aren't something that we all, um, you know, eat on a daily basis. Um, and Lorena, I was wondering, so you are currently in, um, you live in Chile and um, congratulations. I saw that your blog turned five years old a couple of weeks ago. That's a, a huge feat. It's a lot of energy and effort and um, creativity that goes into um hosting a blog and writing a blog and photographing and doing everything that you do. Can you tell us a little bit about your recipe development process? What goes into the recipes that you develop for your blog? Where does your inspiration come from? Hi, Julie. Yes. So five years. Wow. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> believe it. Even when I say it, it's, it's amazing. Um, so my recipe development process, I think it varies a lot. But the reason why my blog is called Cravings Journal is because it literally is the journal of what I'm craving. Mm -hmm. So whatever I feel like eating that week, or maybe I see someone's post and it inspires me, um, I try to put that on the blog. I will never post anything that I don't enjoy eating thoroughly. So no coriander for me, for example, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is very anti-Peruvian, but that's just the way things are. Um, and then I just go ahead and make it. I don't think I have much of a complicated process, but I am very picky about the way that the recipes come out. So if the recipe isn't perfect, I'm willing to try it eight or 10 times until it's just the way that I had it in my mind. That's but, amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. But other than that, I think it's just, you know, just having a good time and eating and enjoying food and drink sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> And tell us a little bit about your childhood. Um, you grew up in Peru and food was sort of central to everything that your family was all about. What are some of the dishes that you enjoyed as a child? And do you remake a lot of those um, in your home now? Yes. So at home, my mom is an amazing cook. Not only my mom, but my whole family, actually. And my dad is Chilean. So I've always also had that you know, double um country thing but peruvian food was at the center of the table every time and when i was in peru really i didn't cook much because i ate such good food at home that i didn't really have the need to cook until i moved to chile the first time and i lived alone and so i started to ask my mom for recipes and then i discovered like wow i could really cook every day of my life i could do this as a job i would love it and that's when i decided to quit quit my day job and moved to London where I studied, uh, when I went to culinary school. Amazing. Um, yeah. So the dishes that I prepare from home, which are almost exact in the way that my mom used to make them is ají de gallina, which is like a mm. chicken, ají, ají amarillo, so yellow chili, uh, stew kind of thing. Um, 
and it's with chicken, it's thickened with bread. Uh, it has a lot of flavor. I love it with potatoes and rice. Yes. Sounds uh, delicious. Do you have that recipe on your blog? Of course. Mm-hmm. And my mom's recipe. Um, another one that is more, I think it's a childhood classic for all of us, which is uh, pasta verde, which is the Peruvian take on pesto, uh, which has both basil and spinach um, and also a few nuts or maybe some crackers in there and you just blend it all up with a bit of garlic and you serve it with pasta and you can freeze it so it's very much like the thing that they would give you because they have in the freezer and there's no time to cook so they would just unfreeze it for you and serve it with a bit of pasta and that's it and I love that recipe as well I think those are my top two uh, childhood recipes that I clearly remember having at home This episode is brought to you by Bend a Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Bend a Table is founded by Ben Simon, a longtime food lover, advocate, and experimenter. Ben goes around the country finding the stuff that you would buy if you were vacationing somewhere cool, like Charleston or California, and he buys it for you and sends it to you in a box. Bend a Table has three different subscription plans. One, pantry essentials, incredible dry staples each month, Rancho Gordo beans, Geechee Boy Grits, and Community Grain Pastas. All excellent, by the way. Global Delicacies is another choice, and it's a way to explore the cuisine of different countries and cultures. Delicacy boxes might include razor clams from Spain, tinned, obviously, wheat lacoche from Mexico, or grilled artichokes in oil from Italy. Bend a Table includes both the Pantry Essential and the Global Delicacy Plan. By purchasing any subscription, you'll help sustainable, well-produced ingredients and small producers stay alive in today's big business environment. Start your monthly subscription at bendatable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription, and Bend a Table will donate $10 to support all of HRN's programming. So speaking of childhood, Maricel, let's um, head over to your background. So you were born in Panama, then you moved to Hawaii, then Japan, then back to the U.S., but to Virginia. Um, Tell us a little bit about the foods that you ate in all of these places where you grew up. And, you know, I'm also wondering if that inspired your love of travel. Um, What are some of the dishes that you remember from growing up all over the world? Absolutely. And I would say my upbringing hasn't necessarily inspired a love for travel, but it's something innate in my DNA. It's it's a compulsion. I I can't not be in one place for for too long. Otherwise I get this this sense of stirring. And the same thing goes for my palate. I was very fortunate to grow up in all of these different countries. And then when I got older, I lived in Madrid for a time. And even while I was was growing up in these countries as a little kid, I never thought anything was different or unique or exotic about my upbringing because that's how that's just how I lived and everyone around me that's how they lived too so it was totally normal so it was you know for me it was normal to eat panamanian food while living in Japan because that's just what we we grew up with in my household and I'm also half cuban my grandmother's from Havana so there's lots of cuban food in my upbringing and that I've learned how to cook. I think one of the most special and particular things about this was bringing all of our recipes from Panama or from Cuba or what we learned in Japan. And when we had to move to a different country was sourcing the ingredients 
for these very traditional recipes in a completely new country. So it, yeah. it, it was a lot, of, there was a lot of difficulty or there just wasn't access to ingredients that you need to make, let's say, una ardaupa vieja como, como los cubanos or to make a sofrito the way that we were used to making a sofrito or, um, you know, having having something to make ardaus imperial, you know, when you're living in Japan, especially, it was it was very hard to get these Latin American ingredients because it was barely possible to get American ingredients while we were there too. So you you kind of just lean into the food and the culture, and you're still making food from your culture as well. But it's 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 like a diaspora, truly. And I think that's also what's really beauty beautiful because it this is what brings on the evolution of cuisine. I think there are strict traditionalist and that there are purists but uh, the way that the way that food evolves and the way that we make new beautiful things is by by moving around by bringing these cultures and traditions to a new country and you think oh okay well this is really cool and I think you know I think you know Andrea and Lorena can especially speak to that you know from you know from Peru you know there's lots of like cultural groups that have immigrated from different countries and have married their cuisines together in Panama. We, we have like a, a, a true Panamanian American cuisine that was due to the construction of the Panama Canal. That's when amazing. Panama, yeah. When the Panama Canal was being constructed, you know, there was a lot of Americans in, in the area and in order to appeal to some American taste, Panamanians developed this. It's a pasta recipe actually called Johnny Marzetti. Oh my god! So Johnny Marzetti is this like outrageous looking sort of casserole pasta dish that was, I think, originally developed by some Italian guy in Ohio. Um, but it was so popular there, and then it was brought to the Canal Zone territory. And in order to kind of add a, like a Panamanian twist to it, there were some olives added to it. So this really interesting, unique pasta dish was born out of the Panama Canal construction, and even even. Arabic sauces like muhammara. Muhammara is a sauce that we use in Panamanian cooking. We're like, oh, what's an Arabic salsa doing in Panamanian cuisine? That was also something that was brought over from the Panama Canal construction. So and I thought it was, yeah. And so like for me, that's also having that type of international upbringing. It's like, okay, I'm from Panama and I'm trying to make this Panamanian dish in Japan, but I have to use Japanese ingredients. Well, something really beautiful could be born from that. I love it. Andrea, tell us a little bit about growing up in Florida. Um, did your parents cook a lot? Did you cook a lot? I know that you really like to incorporate Peruvian ingredients into your everyday cooking. Can you give us some examples? Oh my gosh. So I put a heat on everything <laughs> as like any good Peruvian does. Um, and that's actually been like one of the things that I've been slowly introducing. I, I think I told this to you, Marisol, when we were, when we were talking before that I want like aji amarillo to be the next sriracha. It is so good. And the aji gallina that you were talking about before Lorena, oh my gosh, you were making me melt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But like to get back, like my parents cook so much. My mom is like the queen of all things pastry. And my mm -hmm. dad is like the king of all things savory. So oh, you were lucky. I was very lucky growing up. My parents um, cooked a lot at home and rarely did we ever eat out. 
you know? Um, I mean, we would go out, I mean, once we were a little bit older, we would go out like on the weekends and stuff, but for the most part, it was home cooked meals. And a lot of it revolved around like what my parents grew up eating. You know, we had lomo saltado and ají de gallina and locro, which is like a, locro is a, like a pumpkin dish, which we all have learned to love it when we were kids. Like we didn't like it at all, but yep. it's, <laughs> over time, you now now you love it. You probably make it at home, and your parents are like, "Wait, what? That's what you're making?" I know, and it's funny because um, it's basically like a, a pumpkin that it's like pumpkin puree that has like peas and corn, and it has like the Peruvian corn, which is like big boy corn. It's like the size of your thumb, and it's very similar to hominy, just not the same shape, and it's not very sweet. Um, it's more on like the savory starchy or savory starchy side. Yeah. Um, and then you cover it with like queso fresco and like a good glug of like olive oil and you serve it with rice. I'm hungry um, now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so like, I mean, I grew up eating Peruvian food all the time. Um, and then as I grew older, um, I like my parents always involved me and I started to cook more for my own family. And that was a big transition, cooking for six people at home and then moving to New York and cooking for one. Yeah, um, It was big change. Um, but yeah, part of mostly ají, de, uh, ají amarillo is what I use a lot. Um, I also use a lot of panca, which you've seen in a lot of my recipe pitches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. I like to, I, if I could find like uh, the Peruvian corn fresh, I would most definitely use that because I personally prefer like that more savory corn to like the sweet sweet corn that we get here in the United States yep but um but yeah like those are those are some of my favorite ingredients that I constantly have and then yeah I think that's about it like for the big the big two there are two or three that I use would be those three so while we're on the topic of ingredients, uh, Lorena, maybe you can tell us what are some ingredients that you always have in your pantry, in your fridge, in your freezer? Um, and if those are kind of based on your Peruvian background or from living in Chile, just curious um, what we can always find at your home. So one thing that my boyfriend is always saying, like, don't open our fridge because you're going to be just uh, in awe of the amount of butter that is in there. <laughs> I, I just love butter. I think it's also um, the the sort of culinary cuisine uh, training. I love butter. Um, so I always have some butter there. I also have flour every time. I just love doughs. And especially in the weekends, if I don't have any bread flour for making sourdough bread, then I'm dead. I'm going to go running to find it anywhere. I need to make my therapy sourdough bread in the weekend. Um, and also, I do share that with Andrea, that I need to have some ají amarillo. I've, I've lately been obsessing over ají amarillo chimichurri, which is instead of coriander, which you now know that I yeah i do the same kind of marinade with vinegar and olive oil and garlic but with ají amarillo that's really finely chopped and it's something that they would actually serve you in meat restaurants in peru so i'm currently obsessed with that so i have a big jar of that every time in my fridge and i would add it to everything and anything yes exactly and also garlic i do need my fair share of garlic in there as well And how about you, Marisol? I, it's I. My jaw nearly dropped to the floor when Norena said that she didn't like coriander. <laughs> oh my god! But what about sazon? You know, like 
I put sazon on everything. You know, I, 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 you know, typically it's used for like rubs on meats and the chicken, uh, fish, rice, beans. But I like to use it in place of everything bagel spices. So everywhere you can use everything bagel, you can probably use sazon. So I put it on my bagel with cream cheese, a little sprinkle of sazon. I use it um, on top of my French fries. It's like a swap for Old Bay. Uh, I put it in like my vinegar and oil for salad dressing. So definitely sazon. I always have adobo. We use adobo for everything. Like the easiest baked chicken I make is uh, chicken, olive oil, lemon juice, and adobo. And you mix it and you marinate it, bake it. It's absolutely incredible. And then I don't know about about you, Andrea y Lorena, but like I remember growing up with like little ice cube trays filled with like sofritos, like in my fridge. They were either the green ones or they were the red ones, but like little cubes of sofrito just because it adds so much flavor building for, for any of the base. But then, of course, and I have to give a shout out to Panama because I come from one of the best coffee growing countries in the entire world. And we truly do have like top award winning coffees. One of our coffees sold for a thousand dollars, over a thousand dollars for a single pound last year. So it's really incredible. Um, so always some Panamanian coffee in, in my pantry. That's that's what I cook. That's what I love to have. If I can add on that thing that Marisol said about the frozen food. So in my case, it was the worst because in my freezer, there was always this ice cream uh, container and you would think there was ice cream inside, but no, there was like <laughs> garlic, pureed <laughs> garlic. And whenever you wanted ice cream, you would open it up and it was like, no, <laughs> no, that's horrible. Mom, why did you do that to me? <laughs> Did you guys also grow up with like all the butter tins or anything that was a plastic container? You save the container and you put some food in. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Or like, what about those butter cookie containers? And you put like, you yes. find sewing supplies in it? Oh, yes. Exactly. It. <laughs> yes. All those bummer <laughs> moments. Not what you think it's going to be. Yeah, not what you think it's going to be. Um, <laughs> we had a lot of that as well. I, I definitely remember those butter cookie containers. It was like my mom would put like crayons in there or something. And I'm like, oh my God, score. And then it's like, no. Never um, mind. There right. wasn't even Pinterest back then. Where did they get this idea of using that as storage? <laughs> <laughs> really funny um Lorena so do you still have Joey your sourdough starter Joe yes I do he's almost two years old now and I just love him he's my second child because I also have a dog so <laughs> I always say that the two of them sum up to a child and so you bake a lot on the weekends. You mentioned if you don't have bread flour, it's it's basically a bad day in your house. You've got to go out and get some. What are some of your favorite breads to bake? I, I love a good loaf, and it always gives me a lot of satisfaction to open up the lid of the Dutch oven and see what happened in there. After a day's work of, you know, kneading and looking after it and making sure the temperature is just right. Uh, I just love the process. I, it's therapy for me. I'm not joking. Um, the whole thing about feeding it and watching it grow, it's just magic. You just have flour and water and it becomes this thing that makes you bread. I mean, 
it's it's really a magical process for me and my weekend therapy for sure and if i'm not making a loaf or i always try to make a loaf and maybe something else either with the discard or maybe some pizza or some focaccia which i love to make as well for sandwiches it's the best um but yeah i love to experiment with my sourdough a lot and i've been i've been doing it more often actually that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, and now sourdough has really taken off. Um, you know, obviously during the pandemic, mm-hmm. everyone was, um, you know, trying their hand at a starter, and you know, discard recipes were flying around right and left on on Instagram. Um, but I, I think you're right. It, it's really there's something special about making your own bread on a weekly basis. Um, I'm curious, do you like to enjoy it just? Um, sliced warm with some of that butter from your refrigerator or how's your favorite way to enjoy some of the breads that you make so the first slice i always have it with butter because i i can feel how it tastes like how how sour it is just sprinkle in a bit of um of salt on top and that's it but then i like avocado of course um or in sandwiches i like to press them with cheese oh my god i'm getting so hungry now And I, I'm also trying my hand on marbling the bread, which is uh-huh. really fun. So I've used paprika, I've used turmeric, I've used, um, I've actually used purple corn last week to try to make a purple loaf. Um, first, the dough went gray, and I was like, no, this looks like cement. But thankfully, I kept on going because with the fermentation overnight, it seems like, like the acidity made it go back to purple. So it was amazing. Yeah chemistry for you (laughs) in action. I love it. Um, So I want to shift a little bit the conversation over to social media, um, just because obviously that's where most of us connected for the first time. And I'm just kind of curious, has social media been a vehicle for you to connect with other Latinx and Latino content creators and bloggers and chefs. And maybe if you could each share some of your favorite accounts or any stories you have about how you've connected with people over social media um, over the last couple of years. Andrea, you want to go first? Sure, I can go first. So the way I found actually a lot of the contributors who we're going to be featuring in the next couple of weeks is through an account called We All Grow Latina. Mm. Maricel, I think you follow that one. Yes, I do. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's basically a big online community that is meant to empower and elevate the voices of Latina women. Um, And they do everything from, you know, promoting graphic designers or businesses or food content creators or whatever it may be. So I found a lot of really amazing accounts through there. Um, And through there, I found Isabel Eats. I found, uh, let me see, La Gastronauta is another like family friend of mine who is actually based in Lima. Um, I love her recipes and her videos because she does like traditional Peruvian um, videos and uh, recipes. And she makes it super, super easy and simple to follow and like not intimidating, you know. Um, And then who did I say? I said Isabel Eats. I said like Astronauta. We are... uh, we all grow Latina. And then, oh, I told Lorena this too, before we started the podcast, I was like, she was probably one of my first, um, I, the fangirl moment here, but she was one of my first, <laughs> she was probably one of the first accounts I started following when I decided that I wanted to start taking pictures of food. Um, I looked, the first thing I looked up was, oh, like Peruvian bloggers, like I love Peruvian food and I want to be able to share like my culture. So let's, 
let's find somebody who does something similar and get inspired. And Lorena was actually one of the first people that I started following four or five years ago. So Yay. Four or five yeah. years ago, you were at the start of it. <laughs> I, know, I, I, I found you early on. I, I wasn't I mean, that good back then either. <laughs> I know. And like, but that's the thing. It was like, okay, she's brewing and she's going to like, she's doing something. And I'm telling you, like, even my account now is still not even very big or like consistently posting. But um, my food photography has gotten much better in the last couple of years. And uh, definitely your images were an inspiration for me, for sure. Thank so. you so much. Yeah. <laughs> when I found out, I was like, oh, is Serena going to be on? Oh, I'm excited. I love that. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up, photography. Um, Lorena, do you have any, you know, professional photography experience or did you just teach yourself how to shoot food photography and style? Um uh, there, there are many answers to that question. So I've always loved photography, but I just didn't know that I, even before making food, I just love photography. And I took several courses of photography in uh, Peru while I was living there. And while I was in university, I also took, you know, the extracurricular classes for photography as well. I just loved it. Um, and then when I started doing food, then I went to photography school from Sarah we actually met, met a couple of times afterwards live, which is going to be so rare now. But um, And I don't know, I also learned on the way. I, I love to watch YouTube videos on the subject. I bought a couple of books. It's just really fun for me to do my photos. And I hope that I never lose that because it's part of the poses that I enjoy the most. Writing the post is the worst, but taking the camera <laughs> is the best. I hear you. <laughs> And actually, um, I also noticed that you have both a Spanish and an English Instagram account. I'm curious, have you always had both? Do you publish the same content on both accounts or are they a little different? So actually, my blog started in English because I started when I was living in London and I thought that it was going to be a temporary thing while I was living there. Um, it clearly wasn't. And then I actually started six months after that, I started the Spanish uh, blog, which of course is up still today. But because I live in, uh, I lived in Peru and I live in Chile, my, um, my Latin community started growing much faster than my English community on my Instagram. And there was a point where I decided to divide that up into two, just because the story, like, People who follow me in English didn't get the stories much because I was speaking in Spanish. It was just a mess. And so I decided to split them up. I post the same recipes mostly. There are a few sponsored posts in Spanish maybe that I don't post in English, but mostly it's the same. I would say it's the same, yes. It's double the work, though. Yeah, it must be. Um, that's awesome. And Maricel, so... In terms of social media, I mean, you built a career, um, you know, from connecting with people on social media and, you know, became a, a writer and, um, you know, tell us a little bit about social media and how the connections that you've made with people and publications and also some of, some of the accounts that you think we should be following. Yeah, social media was such a pivotal part of my work as a writer, which may sound like it makes no sense at all, but it really was because I used my social media platform, particularly Instagram, as a means of a portfolio extension. It was like a in in real time portfolio, and I did start to get noticed by a lot of editors and publications by what I was posting on my social media, which included my work, but also things 
off the off the page what I was doing in my kitchen, the restaurants that I was going to behind the scenes for assignments or on camera things that I was doing. And it, it has been one of the most wonderful connectors and meeting new friends. I have so many friends that I've met through social media and people think like, Oh, it's so weird. You met up with this person and you guys knew each other from Instagram. Like, yeah, it's not, it's not weird at all to me anymore because it's, it just seems very natural. And I have been so fortunate to discover other Latinx Instagrammers, writers, because at first I thought when I, when I started getting on social media, when I started writing, like there were not a lot of Latinx writers. I didn't really have anyone that I could talk to perhaps about things that like I was going through, particularly within food media. Cause I, there just wasn't, if they were there, there wasn't a lot of visibility that they were there, which is something really important to me as a writer, but also on the social media influencer side is to always make sure to credit back the work, make sure that the voices are heard by tagging properly. And then, so when I started getting really into it, I did discover some more Latinx writers and social media um, people. I also follow a lot of chefs. So to name a few, like I love Latina to Latina. It's, um, it's a, is it a this, blog or an Instagram account? I guess you would call it like, I guess it's an Instagram account, but it's run by this um, television presenter for MSNBC. Her name is Alicia Menendez. And she wrote uh, this amazing book called um, The Likeability Trap, which is a really great read. Um, so I love following Latina to Latina. It's like, a, it's like you're, your weekly dose of Latina greatness. And she's, she's really, really cool. Um, Maria Hinojosa, she is an NPR journalist and yep. she's the founder of Futuro Media. She's fantastic. She's just, just like bad expletive. <laughs> incredible. Um, but then there's also, you know, bakers like Brian Ford. He is so incredible. Like I was watching this video the other day of him making, um, semitas, uh, they look like conchas to us. He's from Honduras and he was making these like semitas de yema and they looked so absolutely incredible. So I love following him, especially seeing Latino bakers, which is super cool. Um, I also follow Joey Hernandez. He's actually the research director at Bon Appetit. His page is super delicious. And then there's Patty Jinnett. She is um, a television host. She does wonderful uh, Mexican cooking. And then of course, a ton of Latinx chefs and bakers like Isabel Cost, Daniela Sotuines, people from Panama like Mario Castrillon, um, Grace Ramirez, uh, Diana Davila, Michelle Bernstein. So a lot of a lot of chefs too. Uh, it sounds like that's going to be your next article. They you should. It actually it. is. Okay. It's, it actually is. Though. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be seeing it. On, you'll be seeing it on Zagat soon. <laughs> Um, that's awesome. So I think we have time for one last question and, um, you might've each talked about this a little bit already, so you can choose either one. I'd love to know what's your favorite dish to make either at home or to eat out in a restaurant. Maricel, you want to go first? You know, just because I'm craving it right now, I really want and it's actually Spanish, not Hispanic, but like una tortilla española. I love uh, making tortilla española. Yeah. I mentioned I spent, I lived in Madrid um, when I was a student and my señora, her name was uh, 
Concepción Ardujo. Sí, Concepción Ardujo. She would teach me how to make traditional Spanish food every single day. It was great. So one of the things I wanted to perfect immediately was the tortilla española. So I would make it all the time, any time of day, night, state. And it's kind of like my coming into the cold weather comfort food. So tortilla española and of course, uh, ropa vieja. But I like when I go out to eat at a restaurant, I like um, pasta to be made for me, like a cacho de pepe. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I have this mindset, I'm like, oh, pasta is so easy. All I have to do is boil the water, throw the noodles in there, and then just toss some sauce on it. So I tend to I tend to cut a lot of corners, which means that my pasta doesn't actually turn out so great because I'm impatient. <laughs> so I like to go out to eat pasta at restaurants because they'll do it right. <laughs> Love it. How about you, Andrea? Um, for me, my favorite dish to make at home would probably be, it's probably a tie between two. So lomo saltado, which for me is like the, you know, national dish of Peru. Mm. And then the other one's kind of like a fusion. We do, you were saying pasta, Maricel, and I actually do like an ají amarillo cacho pepe. (gasps) That sounds so good. You know, so it's like, and I do that here at home and it is amazing. It's almost very similar to, um, like a huancaina pasta, right? Yeah. Like a huancaina pasta, which huancaina is like a cheese and yellow, aji amarillo, it's like sauce that you dip potatoes, yuca, everything into. You can, uh, put it on salad, everything. And so I, I do something like that. And then favorite dish to eat out at a restaurant is probably something that I won't make for myself at home. Because now, that, since I like to cook, for the most time, for the most part, I like a challenge, and I'm like, okay, like I've never made this before, I'm gonna give it a go, and for the most part, it, it's pretty good, you know. But if there's something that, like, I, you know, just know I cannot make because small New York kitchen or whatever, then that's probably what I'm going for. So pastries would be up there, and then um, I don't know, probably French food. I'm not, I'm not the biggest. Uh, French food person, I think. So French food is definitely something I go out for. Mm-hmm. Nice. And how about you, Lorena? So for me, I actually missed a lot, a dish that I used to have in Peru, which is grilled scallops, but not grilled like on a grill in your kitchen, but actually on a barbecue grill. Um, so there's this uh, restaurant that made them and we just love them. We would order four or five dishes of it just between me and my boyfriend because we adore it. And since I wasn't going to go to Peru anytime soon, I decided to give it a go. And now I'm obsessed. There is not one weekend when we do not order scallops and make them <laughs> on the barbecue grill. I just adore them. There, There's nothing like them. They're making, They're made in a second, so they're a really good appetizer. Um, and I'm just in love. I think that's the perfect combo of something that I would order at a restaurant and still make at home now that I cannot go to that restaurant. Right. Lorena, are these, uh, are these conchas? No, no. Andrea, you need to try this. So what you do is, uh, here we get the scallops attached to the shell. So it's really convenient when you pop them on top of the grill because you can flip them really easily, right? So you would just um, oil the barbecue grill, you place them on top, um, and then you give them about a minute, then you turn them over, and then I glaze them on top with a bit of butter, of course, um, (laughs) and white wine, garlic, and salt and pepper, and just leave them there on, on the shell, or it can also be done off the shell for another minute, and then into your mouth and they're perfect so so good 
But yeah, we have, we've been doing something similar to that too. Like my mom went to Peru back in March and she actually brought back um, las conchas, like the shells, the scallop mm-hmm. shells. And she shipped me probably like 50 of them. And so I have like 50 shells to be able to do this. And I, I use them for conchas a la parmesana when I'm doing them here in my kitchen. But That's a very proving thing too. You keep the shells somewhere stored in case one day something happens and you get the scallops off the shell. And you need you the them in a butter cookie up. tin. Uh huh. Of course, for your kids <laughs> to think that they're cookies and they're not. <laughs> well, thank you all for joining. I really appreciated you taking your time out of busy days to have a conversation. It's always nice to, um, you know, step away from the computer and the phone, and and chat. Um, so really appreciate it. So thank you all. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having you. us. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the food and discovery platform that is the FeedFeed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at thefeedfeed and follow our guests as well. If you have a food story to tell or you want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, or chef about a specific country, region, people, and its cuisine, we'd love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.